Amen. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, what an awesome song to sing on this Palm Sunday morning. And uh, what a powerful uh, reminder that our God is able to save today as he was thousands of years ago. As we read about in the pages of Scripture, um, he can still do and we'll still do it, and we believe he's going to do something amazing through this service this morning. Um, we've got a Bible. We're going to be Mark chapter 10 today. Mark chapter 10, we'll be reading from that in just a few minutes. Um, but I want to just talk about um, what would have been going on on this day 2,000 years ago, um, early on a Sunday morning in 30 AD. Everyone in Jerusalem was filled with a spirit with a hope and with an excitement that many had dreamed about for ages, but maybe wondered if it would ever come. The psalmist mused about it, the prophets foretold it, and God promised it that one day a Savior would come to Israel, that one day a Savior would come, and now more than ever before, Israel needed that Savior. The Israelites had been waiting on this Savior for a long, long time. Perhaps you know their story, but I think it would be a good time to hear it again. Their story goes something like this. The Israelites, they believed that their God was the only God, which was a rare thing for the ancient civilizations or anybody in the ancient world to do. They believed that their God was the only God and that he created the world all on his own. He had no rivals and he had no equals. He acted alone in his own power. Most of the ancient nations and kingdoms and tribes all had their own pantheon of gods, but they acknowledged other gods and believing that they were all battling it out in the cosmos somewhere far away and unseen. And they believed that whichever god was winning at any point in time, it would be made known by whichever nation was winning. The world was one big chessboard, and every god was fighting each other, hopefully the nation, um, the nation that was winning reflected which God and that their God was in control. For years, Israel seemed to be a mere pawn on the chessboard, small, insignificant, and very vulnerable. But Israel believed that the kings and queens and knights and rooks on the board were actually the pawns. Israel believed that their God was moving each nation around to work things in their favor. Israel actually believed that though God created all people, all people had rebelled against him. And it was their ancestor, it was their forefather Abraham, who was rescued from continuing down this rebellious path. God came to Abraham and clued him in on what had been going on for thousands of years. The world spiraled out of control, far away from God. And God told Abraham, that he had a plan and he was going to start his own nation with Abraham to reveal himself and through Abraham and through that nation he would actually bring the whole world back to him. And so the redemption story would begin from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then the sons of Jacob, they grew strong and became a mighty multi-family tribe called Israel, the princes of God. Jacob's sons couldn't decide on who would wear the crown in the family, though, and they feuded and quarreled their way into Egypt, where at first they were guests of honor, but they became slaves. This, too, was all a part of God's plan. Egypt was the mightiest nation of all the earth. It was dominant, and it was sprawling, thanks to a pantheon of gods, ten special, especially um, strong gods. They were unstoppable. They were ruled by a king who wore a very unique crown, 
a king who had worked his way into control not only of Egypt but of the whole world. This king, known as the Serpent King, wore a serpent on his crown as the Egyptians knew the serpents had a very special power that could give their leaders a connection to beyond. Legend had it that it was with his staff and this crown, the king of Egypt could conjure up power from the darkest of pits. The serpent king, Pharaoh, was known for his connection to the underworld, his connection to the serpents. Egypt had many slaves, but for some reason this serpent king was especially preoccupied with the Israelites, or as he called them, the Hebrew slaves. Though they were numerous, the Hebrews were very weak and very helpless, and even though his own men told him it was just ruthless and cruel to continue to pick on them, the serpent king continually made life hellish as he could on the Hebrews. It was rumored that he had a strong disliking for sheep. The Hebrews raised and often sacrificed many lambs in their camp to their long-forgotten God. No one could even remember this God's name. He was just a memory. But the, the serpent king despised the Hebrew God. He despised their lambs. It was almost as if the serpent king feared lambs. It was almost as if he feared the God. Of Israel, But why would this king, so powerful, be afraid of a God who had not spoken or been heard of for years? Why would he be threatened by little lambs? His own advisors and magicians assured him that the Hebrew God, if he was even real, was in captive to the ten supreme Egyptian gods, and that Pharaoh himself had power over his, the, that God. But Pharaoh didn't seem so certain about that. Pharaoh persecuted the Hebrews, ordering that all the newborn boys in one season be killed. But the story goes that the son of one of the Hebrews was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter and was raised as an Egyptian. Perhaps Pharaoh didn't know about it, but maybe he did know about it. Maybe he thought it was funny that one of the Hebrew boys would be raised and corrupted by his own brought up in the ways of the serpent. This boy proved different, though. He was a born leader, and Pharaoh took a special likening to him, grooming him for his own throne one day, maybe even in place of his own natural son. But something snapped in the boy one day, and he rebelled against Egypt. He realized his own identity, and he slew a guard who was oppressing one of his Hebrew kinsmen. He fled into the desert to the wilderness, and Pharaoh didn't order the guards chase him down. He assumed he was dead for in the desert. The serpent king would pass his crown on and his staff on to his oldest son when his time was up, and the oppression of the Hebrew people only intensified. The boy, of course, long gone at this point, was named Moses. And in his exile, like Abraham before him, God came to him and told him that this was just another page in his plan. God told Moses that his name was Yahweh, the great I Am, the only God, greater than any God of Egypt, but actually the only God of the world. God told Moses to pick up an old rugged staff, and together they would face off against the serpent king with true power, with heaven's power. God told Moses that Pharaoh indeed was afraid of him. The serpent king had been afraid of this day since Eden. Moses couldn't make sense of that. How was Pharaoh around back then? But he knew something was different about this serpent king. Moses would reveal Yahweh to Egypt and dismantle any hopes that their ten gods were actually in control. Plague after plague proved that Israel's God was greater than all 
of them. The final plague was very unique. The final plague saw the serpent face off against the lamb. And though the serpent spit fiery venom, the lamb would not fight. The lamb simply gave up his life. The lamb gave up its blood. Yahweh turned the serpent's power back on him that night. In every household where there was no lamb's blood on the doorpost, death swept through the city and took life after life. No doubt Pharaoh's own son was taken as well, a sign that this dynasty of evil was coming to an end. The serpent wouldn't rule this planet forever. The Lamb of God would overcome. The Lamb of God would take away the world's sin, and the Lamb of God would drain the serpent's power once and for all. This was, of course, just a preview of a greater day to come, but Israel did get free from Egypt. They made their way to a mountain where God made many promises and gave them his holy word. God promised them a kingdom, a a reversal of their previous fortune where Israel would be on top. And through Israel, the world would hear and know the name of Yahweh as the one true and only God. Israel conquered and grew, and eventually they came together as a united kingdom under a charming, handsome, and brilliant king named David. God promised that David's throne would last forever. Though David was just a man, a greater king would come after him and through him and establish a greater global kingdom through Israel. Many anticipated that this was just a generation or two away. They would continue to rise and prosper, but that was not so. David's son and his heirs didn't establish a throne forever, though initially things did get better and greater. Solomon, in the continuation of David's line, squandered their father's legacy and all that he had left for them. The result was a divided kingdom, eventually a civil war, north against south, a loss of faith, and as quick as things came together, they fell apart, as if the serpent was still slithering his way through their midst, as if His power was in the heart of even God's chosen people. At one point in the history um, of Israel, idols of serpents were crafted and put up throughout the land. And Passover ceased to be celebrated. How could that be? Why would the Israelites ever turn away from the lamb and go toward the serpent? But it shouldn't be too surprising, even if it makes no good sense. You see, the serpent is always trying to overcome and overrule and downplay the power of the Lamb. He's crafty and persistent. He's incredibly patient, and he's subtle. Within 400 years, Israel would go from being the greatest power in the world to being of no power at all. They would lose its land, lose their land, and lose their power. And once again, it seemed as if their God had lost in some battle in the skies. The kings of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome all took turns ruling over the land, passing the Jewish people from one camp to another. Eventually, under Rome, they were allowed to resettle their land, but they were on a short leash. They wondered what happened. Where was God? What happened to his promises? They clung to the words of the prophets that God had sent, who all promised that the light was not gone forever, that the hope was not lost for good. There were promises of a Savior who would come. Promises of a King who would come. A Savior greater than Moses, a King greater than David. A Savior who would once and for all crush the serpent 
a king who would once and for all establish God's throne. But where and how? They had to wait. You see, unlike many nations, when things didn't go so good or when things didn't look so promising, Israel held on to hope because they held on to the records of what God had done before. Year after year after they resettled the land, they would celebrate Passover, remembering that time when the lamb defeated the serpent, wondering if and wondering when it might happen again, and this time on a much bigger and personal scale. You know, in the ancient world, everyone was afraid of their gods or their God. But Israel was not afraid of their God. Now, they had a sense of fear and reverence, awe and wonder before him, of course, but they weren't afraid of him. They weren't afraid of him because there wasn't any reason to be afraid. He loved them. The Bible's told them that. He chose them. He was working all things together for them. But when you come to the New Testament era during the Roman occupation, Israel had become very bitter and very indignant, very jealous of the rest of the world. They believed God loved them more and chose them over and worked against others, and they didn't understand why it wasn't working out for them in this current season. God never really said that He loved them more or chose them over or worked against others, but they just took that to be the way it was. They chose to take the favor He had shown them and make it exclusive and even make it a means of profit. Israel would gate off the temple even and even divide their own people from the haves and the haves not. Israel had gotten so burnt by the people of the world succeeding in their place, they actually had a great disdain for anyone who wasn't Jewish and became so paranoid of appearing holy and godly, they even ostracized their own people in an attempt to please God. The religious circles got smaller and smaller, casting more and more out. Rather than trusting in God... In waiting on God's goodness, they relied on their own. They worked so hard to seem to be holy and to look holy and to be religious. They didn't regard God's favor or God's goodness at all anymore. It was all about what they could do and what they had done. Rather than seeing Israel as a means of saving or blessing the world, they wanted a Savior who would save and bless only them and reward them for their merit or their good deeds, or at least that's all they cared about at this point. They waited and waited, trying to be better, and lo and behold, a movement began out of nowhere. Literally out of nowhere, down by the Dead Sea, a prophet emerged after God had not been heard from for centuries. A prophet came who had been traveling up the Jordan River, north toward Jerusalem and beyond. He began preaching that God had heard Israel's cry, that God was moving toward Israel once again. This time, this was for real. This was the great day of the Lord they had been waiting for. This prophet was called John the Baptist, standing in the Jordan River, calling people to be washed and made clean and get ready for what God was about to do who God was about to send. It was John who first introduced the nation to Jesus. Remember how he introduced them to him? The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, this must be a symbol or it must, must be just a metaphor, right? Perhaps during Passover season, Jesus would sacrifice a lamb and show people that he was their next Moses. He was their next David. At least they were hoping that was the case. 
Understand of the Jews, the only sin they saw and felt in the world was Rome's tyranny. They wanted a king who could take down the empire and establish a kingdom for them once again. And of course, Jesus came with a message that they were very quick to pay attention to and really was music to their ears. Remember, Jesus started the book of Mark by saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. God has drawn near. The kingdom is here Repent, as in change the way you've been doing things. Look away from wherever you've been looking for help and for hope. Look toward me and believe the good news that God is closer than you could ever imagine. This was too good to be true. Jesus was their Moses, but he wasn't just another Moses. He was their David, and he wasn't just another David. He was greater than David. He was greater than Moses. He was the Messiah they'd all been waiting for. He was going to finally bring the kingdom of God to earth. They started dreaming of the palaces and of all the festivals and all the riches and all the luxuries they were about to experience. Fighting over who was going to be first in line to that great and wonderful day to come. This was what God promised Abraham, what God promised Moses and David and the prophets. This was their destiny. Could Jesus be, could he finally be the Savior they had been waiting for, the Savior they needed so badly? He came on the scene and he did many miracles. Divine power was worked day after day through signs and wonders. He signaled that his mission wasn't the takeover, though, that they had been dreaming of. Many times he would confront the religious leaders about how far from God their system had gotten. It was as if Jesus' definition of God's kingdom was different than what many expected. Almost as if it was one without buildings or borders or boundaries. But what could it be and how could that be a kingdom of any kind? What made this convincing was how Jesus made people feel in spite of how far from ideal things were. It was almost as if God's kingdom had already come. In spite of Rome, in spite of sin, in spite of brokenness, God was already here over and against their brokenness. People felt close to God for the first time in really ever. Yeah, it'd be nice if all the bad stuff went away, but all the bad had not kept God away. And Jesus took the religious system more and more, took on the system more and more. It became apparent that religion wasn't doing anything more but deceiving people than it was actually helping people. Their religion had been tailor-made to mask people's problems, cover up people's sin, not address it, not offer help. It only invited and allowed certain people in. Their religion, come to think of it, was like most kingdoms of this earth. It was centered around a time and a place, a day and an hour, and was only for a very select few It did more to protect insiders than it did to address outsiders or reach out to those away. All the while, those on the inside had many needs that weren't getting treated. Jesus came doing miracles to prove he had the ability to give true heart change to people, to set people free from darkness and bring in God's true presence. Jesus made many, uh, many realize that everyone has darkness inside of them in hopes um, that he can come near still yet almost making it necessary that God not rid the world of all evil in hopes that all the evil in the world might come near to God and find salvation from God. What if this was the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in? Not a kingdom just for a certain group of people at a certain place in a certain time, 
but a kingdom for all people, no matter what you've done or who you've been or what you've been involved in, a kingdom that has its doors open for you, even you this morning, a kingdom that says no matter who you are, God has come near, God has favored you, God can help you. Of course, the religious leaders didn't like that idea because they wanted to, be, to feel like they were better than everyone else. But those on the bottom of society, those that had been cast out, they loved this message. It made them feel valuable. It made them feel loved. This kingdom, a kingdom of the heart, where God, where God would dwell in people, within people, work through people, and reach out to all people. This was the kingdom Jesus was building where God brought peace and purpose to everyone and worked for good in spite of all the broken and all the bad. What if the new Passover wasn't about setting a nation free or building another nation up? What if it wasn't just about one race and one nation and one location and one day? What if it was bigger and broader what if it had the implications that could reach everyone throughout all time? Well, that would throw a kink in the plans that they had been preparing for the week of Nisan the 10th, Passover week 30 AD. Because as Jesus continued to amass more and more crowds, the whispers of him being king and starting or restarting the kingdom of Israel grew louder and more widespread and everyone began planning for a day to commemorate this new king in this new kingdom that was all about Israel and was all about them. Many consulted the Old Testament promises and prophecies. One psalm always stood out and was held up as a messianic psalm a prophecy about the Savior to come, and actually it was spun out into a song or a chant that they were all waiting to sing for whenever Messiah would appear. Part of this song actually addresses how the, even the religious leaders may not initially respond to the Messiah, and that might be the sign that tells everyone when he comes. Psalm 118 verse 22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And as they consulted this messianic psalm, this prophecy, it became very clear that this was talking about Jesus. And these next few verses became the, 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 the lyrics to a song they prepared for a very special day. Psalm 118.25, Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. The Hebrew there is Hosanna, Hosanna. Save us now. Save us, please. Save us, we pray. Apparently, there was a meeting in Jesus' inner circle. Passover week was nearing, and the idea came for Jesus to enter Jerusalem on a Sunday before the festivities got fired up. They would throw a big parade for him. They would lay palm branches down. They would roll out the red carpet for him. They would sing and celebrate and let the world know, let Jerusalem know that the king was here and the kingdom was on its way. It was a perfect idea, and Jesus gave him the green light. Jesus said, Go ahead. But he held back the twelve while the rest went on to plan the big event. Things were lining up so perfectly. Jesus rolls into town as king uh, and he oversees Passover and he says to Rome, look out because the lamb is going to deliver Israel once again. But scripture tells us that when he sent the crowds on ahead, he had a very serious conversation with the twelve. If you have a Bible, we're in Mark 10, verse 32 through 34. Jesus signals that things aren't going to go the way they thought they were going to go this week. 
of Passover. Scripture says, Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed as they followed. They were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. So when it says they were afraid, it was just they were nervous. I mean, they'd been waiting for this their whole life. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah and Haggai, they all had been talking about this day forever, the day when the king was going to roll into town on a donkey, right? Palm branches waving and, and, and music and festivities all around. They had been dreaming of this they were all tingling they, they were chills going up their spine this was the day they had all been waiting for that Moses and David all prophesied about they couldn't believe it Jesus was going to be paraded in his king he was going to take over the world or so they thought Jesus says in verse 33 behold we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed and it, I can't overstate just how jarring that would have been for them. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. I don't think they heard it the first time. I think he had to say it a couple times. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And maybe, maybe this is where the Jews are thinking or the disciples are thinking, okay, well, I mean, the cornerstone's rejected by the, by the religious leaders. That doesn't mean you're still not powerful. That doesn't mean that you're not going to say, well... We don't need you to become to, to build the kingdom. We can just start over with a new group of religious leaders. So maybe when they heard him say that, they were thinking, well, that sounds bad, but you know what? Jesus is greater. They've been fighting each other, so this doesn't have to be bad news. This might be part of the plan because they're not going to kill Jesus. I mean, turn him over to the Gentiles, turn him over to Rome. Jesus, you're about to take over Rome. But Jesus says, I'm not done. They will mock him. Well, come on, mocking the Messiah. What good is that going to do? They will scourge him. Messiahs can't bleed. Messiahs can't be hurt. They will spit on him. Well, I mean, you know, insult the Messiah. What's that going to do? Make you one step closer to hell? I mean, hey, Jesus, you've still got this. And they'll kill him. What? Jesus... But, but they're throwing a parade for you. I mean, did you, what, what did Jesus say? They're going to kill you? I mean, we can turn around. I mean, we don't have to go if they're going to. But Jesus says, but don't worry, guys. On the third day, he will rise again. Now, you've got to understand, they had never seen a resurrection before. So they didn't hear anything past kill him. Because they couldn't comprehend the resurrection. They couldn't comprehend the Messiah being killed. They had left their jobs for this. They left their families for this. They had dreamt of this. How in the world was this going to fall apart? Right when it was coming together. You see, in this moment, Jesus reveals something very important to his disciples that we need to know about him this morning. Yes, he was their king. But he was also their lamb. He was the Lamb of God. You see, Jesus had not come to take over the land. He had come to be the Passover Lamb Himself. Now, they didn't understand that quite yet. 
Rome was not their greatest enemy, just like Egypt was not their greatest enemy before. There was another serpent, a greater serpent. His venomous bite of sin and his bottomless pit of hell had to be defeated. And Jesus was going to do it himself. Now in this passage, an ill-timed request from James and John comes before Jesus. They had been dreaming of this earthly success. They were expecting a kingdom in the next few days to get started. And they ask him if one or the other is going to be his right hand or his left hand man in the kingdom. Now you can understand they had, they had just planned the parade, right? So when we read this in the story, we think, well, that kind of sounds out of place. That kind of sounds in, you know, insensitive to the moment. But they had been waiting to ask him this, right? I mean, they're planning the parade. The kingdom's going to start any day now, right? Thursday's Passover. We're going to sacrifice the lamb. We're going to take over the world. So hey, James and John says, hey, Jesus, we know that we're your favorites, right? Because, you know, Peter, you know, you got to pick one of us, right? Or Peter, but we'll just get in front of the line. Which one of us is going to be your right-hand man in the kingdom? And Jesus looked at him and says, not the time, guys. But maybe it is the time to talk about my kingdom a little bit more. Jesus explained once again his kingdom was not like those of this world. It wasn't about conquest or upheaval. It was about bringing peace and offering salvation. It wasn't about ruling or being served. It was about rescuing and serving and saving Mark 10, verse 42, Jesus calls them to himself and says to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. Or when a man gets in power, he likes to remind people below him that he's in charge, right? When a king or a kingdom takes over, we like to look over at the little guys and say, Hey, I'm in charge. And that was what everyone dreamed of. That's what the Jews dreamed of. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do for them. You know that those who are in power lord it over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. But he says, yet it shall not be so among you. It's not going to be that way in my kingdom. Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, it's not about your your wealth or your, your rank or your status. It's about your heart. Whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave or shall be last. Now what did Jesus just tell them he was going to do on this Passover week? He was going to get at the back of the line. He was going to suffer. He was going to be killed. Why? For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Because there was a serpent who was tightening his grip around the whole world. And only one could stop him. Jesus and the twelve soon became Jesus and the eleven. Judas Iscariot wanted nothing to do with serving or saving or helping others. He was only in this for himself, for gaining and for winning. But the story goes on and Jesus goes through with the parade. Why would he do that? Now, the twelve or the eleven knew the real future, but the rest thought this was just the starting of an amazing week that they would remember forever for good reasons. Why did Jesus go through with the parade, you wonder? Well, he was still a king. He was indeed the king they'd been waiting for. He just wasn't going to set up a throne where they thought he was going to set up a throne. He just wasn't going to do it the way they thought he was going to do it. He was still king, just not like one this world had ever seen. You see, he was a king who came not to rule over, but to raise up. A king not 
who, who came not to take but to give. A king who would not send others to fight for him but would face our enemies himself. This is why we celebrate today, even in a broken world, even in a fallen age, because we have a Savior. We have a King. We have a kingdom. And against the broken world, we have a King who is fighting for us. And yes, we may take some hits every once in a while, but our Savior takes those as well. He takes the brute force for us. He took the brute force for us. Later this week, Jesus would be on trial and he was asked if he was a king. And Jesus said in John 18, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But the reason why we're not fighting is because we're not afraid of you. We're not afraid of you, evil empire, Rome, or a, a disease or anything else that can come against us on this side in our flesh. Because our kingdom is not of flesh and blood. Now, that doesn't mean we rejoice when trouble comes, but that also means we don't panic when it comes. We don't fear anything. We don't even fear death. You know, I was thinking the other day, I'm not afraid of getting the virus that's spreading. I don't want to get it, but I'm not afraid of it. If it takes my life, I've got life everlasting ready to start up, when and if. But you know what does scare me? What scares me is me not being able to do what I love to do and be where I think I need to be. But that too is a notion of my own pride. You see, I think a day can't go on without me. I think if I don't do it, it won't get done. I think if I don't do it, if I don't show up, the world will miss me. And yes, I'm valuable to God, but I am not irreplaceable. My pride wants to elevate myself to a level that only Jesus exists on, and no good work that I'll ever do will ever rival the work that he has done. And the only work I need is the work that he has done for me. Yes, I want to serve him, but there's a pride in me, there's a pride in us all that wants to get in the way of what Jesus alone can do. Whatever befalls me, wherever I'm placed, my song will be Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest because I have a Savior, you have a Savior, Jesus is our Savior. He can be your Savior, you can enter his kingdom today. No matter if things improve on our end today, tomorrow, or forever, we will still have a reason to celebrate this Palm Sunday, this Passion Week. The story goes on in Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem at Bethpage in Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. He said to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has um, sat. Loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately, he will send it there. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before him and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our Father 
David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the temple. They thought this was the beginning of the kingdom. But after this, Jesus goes on to challenge the religious establishment once more. He picks a few fights that many think are unnecessary. He wants to distinguish between what he is doing to save and what they are doing to keep people enslaved. Religion is used by the enemy to trap us in our sin, to distance us from Jesus. Trap us in this cycle of doing better, trying harder, but we always fall short. Religion makes bank off deceiving people into its clutches. But Jesus came to remove us from religion's grip and place us in God's hands. And that's where we want to be today. Our connection is not about what we do or where we go, how successful we've been, but it's about who God is and what God has done in the victory He has won. Maybe you wonder why we wave palm branches on Palm Sunday. Why did they wave palm branches on Palm Sunday? Well, palm branches in the ancient world, specifically in the time of the Roman Empire, were a symbol of Rome's victory and triumph over the whole world. Rome would often wave and have palm branches planted and flying all around the land because this was a symbol of their own power. So the Jews waved Rome's palm branches back at them that day, thinking that Jesus had come to conquer Rome, reminding Rome that you have nothing on our Savior. They didn't know that they needed to be saved from something far greater than Rome. Again, verse 11 tells us that Jesus would head to the temple after the parade. Maybe you don't know this, but everyone in town that day would have been in a very long line after the parade was over. Everyone would have been in town that day in a line to the temple because that Sunday happened to be the 10th of Nisan, the 10th of Abib, the Hebrew month, the first month of the Hebrew calendar. And it was very important that you have a lamb that day. Because Scripture says on the 10th day of the first month of the year, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household, because four days later it would be the day you would sacrifice the lamb as a symbol and a sign of that first Passover. So on this Sunday when they had a parade, it happened to also be the day that the Jews would have been preparing for Passover, the 10th of the month. Jesus would have went to the temple to get a lamb for his following, for his group, to take it and raise it for the next few days to prepare for that ceremony. Now you know the story. Jesus goes to the temple and he finds that day that the temple is not giving these lambs away, but they're selling these lambs because the temple was literally selling salvation as the Lamb of God. The lambs they were providing, they were selling them, saying to people, unless you pay our price, you can't get to God. Jesus had come to make salvation free. Of course, he turns over the money tables. He sends these um, hirelings out of the temple and everyone walks away with a free lamb that day, including Jesus. Jesus himself left with a lamb, one, one for his following, one for their household. Can you imagine? Everyone thought that the lamb that Jesus took that day would be the one that would start the domino effect. The lamb that he and his household would sacrifice that would signal the victory that once everyone heard of it, God would start doing something that they could not imagine. Just like he freed them from Egypt, he would free them from Rome. And rather than Moses leading them into the wilderness, Jesus would lead them, lead them to a kingdom. Little did they know. Little did they know that later that week, after the Passover meal, Jesus would be arrested. He would not take up a sword, but he would take up a Roman cross. 
at the demand of the very religious leaders he angered this day. And on that Roman cross, he would hang and he would bleed. You see, Israel needed a savior from their enemies, from themselves. They needed another Passover lamb and they thought Jesus was going to bring it to them. They just didn't expect Jesus to be the Lamb of God who would bleed to death himself. They didn't expect Jesus to be their Passover. Because Jesus hung on a cross that day, he is our victory and he is our triumph. Our hearts can be washed and our souls can be freed because of his cleansing blood. Our hearts can be made new. God has come near. His kingdom's doors are wide open. This week we peer back into history. We see how our king rejected the invitation to take up a crown of gold and a throne of power. He took a crown of thorns. He took a cross of death. You see, Jesus could have had any throne he wanted. But rather than being confined to a single earthly place for just a certain people, he has his spirit to take up residence in the heart of anyone who believes. He desired and he still desires to dwell in every willing heart. His spirit moves today toward whomever would say, I want Jesus to be the king of my heart. You see, his kingdom is not of this world. It didn't have a throne in a palace in an ancient city. His kingdom spans time and generations. His kingdom started when he bled on a cross and he defeated our sin. And when he rose from the grave, he ushered his kingdom into this world. And every one of us can have have that kingdom realized in our hearts. The next day after the parade, Jesus is confronted by religious leaders arguing with each other, and one of them stands out among the rest. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to leave this religion that is dead, and he sees Jesus talking, and, and he sees where Jesus is inviting them. He confesses to Jesus that he wants true relationship with God where one rests in who God is and loves him for it and trusts him with everything. And in return, you would love others with the same love. He gets it and it's not about what law or what ritual you follow, but it's about putting your faith and giving your heart to God, trusting in him, surrendering to him, loving him and loving others, being holy and being made whole. Jesus hears this man's confession and building off his initial invitation in this gospel that the kingdom of God has come near, that anybody can enter if they only trust and turn. Jesus says to this man, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Because in just a few short days, God would demonstrate his love for this man and for everybody else, and Jesus would lay his life down on a cross. His blood would pour out over Calvary's hill, and from that day on, no one would ever have to be far away from God again. Because our sins were forgiven that day. Our debt was paid that day. The Lamb of God took away everything that was in the way between us and God. Everything. With an old, rugged cross, the Lamb of God crushed the serpent. The Lamb's blood was stronger than the sin in the serpent's mouth. The bite that may have killed Jesus only started the flow 
of a crimson fount that would save everyone and defeat the serpent. So the serpent was out of the way. God's presence is here to stay. And under Jesus' blood, we can always be close. Our hearts can always be full. Jesus can be the king of our hearts. In this day when our churches are empty, in this day when our world is hurting, now more than ever, we need a Savior. Bigger than time, bigger than place. A Savior not of this land or that league, but a Savior who comes and dwells in our hearts, who can connect us and fill us with the power of heaven. A Savior who can free us from sin. A Savior who can heal us from all brokenness. A Savior who can give us the presence of God no matter what. Thankfully, He's not far away and we aren't far away. If only our faith would rise from wherever we are. If we would just lift our hands and surrender and believe. If we cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Save us, please, O Jesus. For the first time, for renewal or revival forever, he will hear our cry. We, you can be made whole. We can be his and he will be ours. The prophecy from long ago. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, and mounted on a donkey. Jesus rode into town on Palm Sunday, ushering in a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that still rules today. A kingdom that has doors that are still open today. His invitation is gentle and kind. His approach is gracious and pure because he's not here to conquer. He's not here to condemn. He's here to bring God near, always and forever, to wherever you are, no matter what you've done. He can be the king of your heart today. Our worship team is going to come up and lead us in a song I think that is fitting for this season. If God has moved in your heart today, if God has moved in your house today, don't turn away. Don't deny his awesome work that he can do in your life and in your heart. And may this song invite all of us, all of you, to lift up our hands. Believe perhaps for the first time, maybe again, and invite the King to rule in our hearts today.